The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, let's get out to Vegas to the craps table at Bellagio, uh, the high rollers craps table, which is where I tend to sit. Uh, Ed Ludlow's out there. Uh, ostensibly at the CES conference, the Consumer Electronics Show, or as I like to call it, the Auto Show, with some gadgets around it. Ed, what's the what's the buzz out there in Vegas this year? Is it pretty much AI driven across the board? Yeah, I, I put a newsletter or a column out this morning saying it's AI everywhere and not necessarily in the ways you'd expect. Just on something you just said, there is a heavy automotive presence here and we can get into that. but. I think there are two kind of key things. You're seeing this kind of abstract conversation around AI and particularly generative AI translate into real world things. So for example, I spent the afternoon yesterday with Walmart. And if you are an iOS user or you have an iPhone, you bring up your Walmart app, you no longer have to search for uh, hot dog buns or beer (laughs) specifically by brand. What you can do is go into their generative AI tool and say, I am hosting a Super Bowl weekend party what should I buy? And it will list a complete shopping cart for you ready to go. Then you have the option to click it. So that's kind of a real world manifestation of AI. I know what, who needs that? Actually, it works really well (laughs) for the demo. I I like the uh, Englishman uh, Englishman hosting hosting the Super Bowl party. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that's it. Uh, guys, as you know, I am a fair weather 49ers right. fan. I have no interest. Uh, but it, it's an interesting experiment to do. The other side of it as well is that there are dozens of pieces of consumer devices or hardware where the selling point is AI, and that yeah. looks different in different ways. Making it easier for us to shop and spend money. Yes, That's what exactly. they're doing. They're good at that. Um, and so Paul Quite. had mentioned about um, how there's more car companies there. Um, car is a big thing. We spoke yesterday about this Goodyear tire that was released. If you could tell us a little bit more about this, because uh, I hadn't yes. even realized that that EVs really wear and tear in those tires a lot faster. Yeah, something that happened just before the pandemic is that the kind of classic car shows, think about the Detroit Auto Show or the Munich Auto Show, had kind of lost their shine. And you saw companies choose CES to be the place that they unveiled their EVs. Four years later, that's not necessarily true. Honda did unveil its next generation EVs here. And Honda's important, right? Many Americans drive a Honda. But when I spoke to the CEO about the plan, he basically told me we don't really have a plan. 
We just know that sometime in 2026, this EV concept we've shown you just now may or may not appear on US roads, which didn't fill me with confidence. Um, <laughs> and then away from that, it's all about automotive tech. Think about advanced driver assistance, driving safety, the experience in the cockpit. Mercedes were on the show with me yesterday and they've brought a virtual assistant into the Mercedes cockpit where you literally say to Mercedes, I'm driving home, hey Mercedes, I need to shop, go to Walmart, put some stuff in my, my, my basket. By the way, there are other retailers and big boxes available other than Walmart. That was just one example. Right. So, Ed, I mean, it's just, I know I can see from the background you're, you're in the exhibit hall here. What's the traffic been like there and, and kind of what's the makeup of the crowd? Because when I yeah. went, I was surprised at how global the attendance really is at this. We get people from everywhere come to Vegas. Yeah, the, the data gives us a good read on, on post-pandemic business travel and, and some, some insight into the economy, right? There are 130,000 130 wow. attendees expected for this year's CES. That's up from about 115,000 last year, but it's still significantly below pre-pandemic levels in terms of footfall and attendance. The international angle is interesting. One third of all attendees this year have come from overseas. And, you know, just anecdotally, when you fly into... To, the airport, when you're waiting for a taxi, when you are in the casinos, there is a real sense that actually there is strong attendance this year, strong spend, and that that business travel component is back. And when I speak to sources, the reason why is very clear, it's speed dating. And I mean that seriously. <laughs> if you are the CEO of a big company, yep. or you are trying to meet with a CEO of a company, everyone's in one place for just two days, get it done. Yeah, that's a great point. And what's the sense of, you know, one of the things I think a lot of people are trying to get a hold of, particularly investors, is, you know, this AI is such a, a, a new growth driver for technology. How much of it is incremental spending, do you think? I mean, do, do you hear companies saying, we're amping up our tech spending because of AI, or is it kind of replacing other tech spending? You get any sense from the companies out there? Yeah, it's definitely a case of prioritizing rather than increasing overall spend. You know, we've seen this particularly on cloud spend, right, where a number of companies will say, okay, we have to be involved in AI. So we're adjusting the proportion that we're spending on uh, compute power versus data storage, for example. Um, there is really interesting ways that it manifests itself. Bear with me on this one. I spoke to L'Oreal CEO, Nicolas Hieronymus, and they have a new device. The device is in beauty stores. It, it registers uh, a reading of your skin. And, and that sounds abstract and silly, but the reason that AI is important and they've invested in it, they're saying that if you're a human in, one, in a store that's buying a L'Oreal product and you go up to the counter and speak to another human, there is a 9% chance that that sales rep converts the sale. If you use this AI-powered machine, L'Oreal thinks that this chance of a sale increases to 73%. Wow. Because the AI can give you such a convincing read on your face and suggest products directly relevant to you. So, th so there is evidence that there's kind of very focused spend on how AI can convert sales opportunities and boost margins. You know, I have to agree with that because <laughs> if I went to a computer and it told me, I've had a lot of people in the in the you know beauty store that have told me the wrong shade for my face and I walked right? out of there looking like an orange. And, it's, <laughs> and, and if a computer told me, I think I might believe it a little bit better. Um, Ed, wanted to talk quickly, TikTok, a lot of companies teaming up with them. Now we're hearing Google is doing it um, to stream those videos from your phone to yeah. TVs. 
Yeah, so broadly, Google's whole CES thing was the ability to take content from the cell phone, stream it to the TV. They're taking on Apple's AirPlay in that respect. But the TikTok tie-up, God, that's a tongue twister, is, is, a, is an interesting one because this time a year ago, we were, we were lamenting the fate of TikTok in this country that it was going to face seriously regulatory and, and government scrutiny. Now in the space of a week, it has a deal with Peloton and it has a deal with Google to amplify the distribution uh, of their content and also TikTok's content. And it just shows there's a bit of traction going here. And remember, you know, there are a lot of users of TikTok in this country who don't necessarily have any interest in that regulatory scrutiny that we reported so much on last yep. year. Hey, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Great color, as always, from uh, the floor of the Consumer Electronics Show out in Las Vegas. And as Ed was just reporting, um, boy, everybody is out there, not just tech companies, but pretty much every CEO uh, is out there because technology impacts their companies one way or the other, and they need to be out there. Ed Ludlow, he's the host of Bloomberg Technology, is reporting uh, live from the uh, event space, the event hall out there in Las Vegas. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about Boeing here. This is really an issue. I, I mean, I love this company because I just, it, to me, it's always seemed like a real symbol of American engineering ingenuity, leadership. Uh, you think about the amazing facility they have out there in Seattle when you're driving uh, on the on the highway from the SeaTac Airport into Seattle, you just kind of pass it by. It's just mile after mile after mile of their facilities there and jets all over the place. Just amazing. But boy, they've had some real challenges over the last really three, four, five years and the latest being with this uh, 737 uh, MAX jet with a, a side blowing out. George Ferguson, he's a senior aerospace airline analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He follows this company very, very closely. George, what are we hearing from the company today about where they are in terms of, I guess, kind of getting these birds back in the, in the air here and, and maybe, you know, kind of what their thinking is about what happened? So I, I think we're still waiting to hear from uh, the regulator, from the FAA on uh, an agreement on the inspection plan to get the airplanes back uh, back into the air. Um, it, it's a it's a fast moving uh, story, so I don't, I don't know that uh, I may have missed something in the last couple of minutes, but I still don't think uh, we've agreed on, on an inspection plan yet. And yesterday, what I think we heard was uh, there was an all hands meeting. Uh, you know, where CEO Calhoun told the employees that uh, you know they had to sort of own up to their mistakes. I guess was what he kind of said. So. Uh, sounded a little bit contrite there, but um, I, I think that's the latest for us. The biggest issue is will this spread past the 737 Max 9 if it if it goes and uh, you know you end up ha having to park the Max 8 fleet? That would be a major issue. Right now, we don't see that happening. Uh, it, it looks like it's not going to interrupt 
uh, deliveries, I think, for 2024 in the form it is right now. And that's what uh, we're watching very closely too, right? Because if that impacts uh, the potential for deliveries, well, if the start to knock goes down and that changes cash flow, uh, you know, income, all those uh, all those great items that we focus on in the, in the markets. Now, George, yesterday we heard from CEO um, Dave Calhoun. He was basically kind of fighting back tears. He was kind of owning up to the, the company's shortcomings. What was the reaction to that? What did people think about his reaction? And also, we haven't heard from the supplier much as well. Yeah, I mean, I, the um, I guess from the supplier, the supplier put out a, a press release, uh, I think it was Monday morning, a wall of, you know, Spirit Air Systems, the supplier. We're not sure that it necessarily happened at Spirit Air Systems. They do make the fuselage. They do, we do believe they put the plug in there, but Boeing may take the plug out to, to load the airplane. So, uh, but they seem to be much slower in doing much of anything and letting Boeing take the lead. I think that's probably fair. It's Boeing's airplane. Um, and, and I think it was interesting to see, you know, you know this whole issue, but I think it, you know, at the end of the day, uh, everybody's trying, still trying to figure out where the problem is how far it reaches and and you know what the what the financial what the travel impact is so there wasn't a lot new in that just that it seemed like maybe he was indicating that it was going to be boeing's fault or boeing suppliers fault at the end so at the end of the day george this is i mean boeing's the, the name that that that's on the plane here i mean what's the feeling within the aerospace circles that you travel in george i mean i know you go to all the air shows uh you talk to all these buyers the the folks that lease these planes does Boeing have a real fundamental engineering slash manufacturing problem, do you think? I, I think that sense is in the aerospace circles that there is a fundamental problem. Uh, you, you know, in, in this case, I would say it's not so much engineering, right? Engineering was really around the MCAS system. In this case, it's a fundamental manufacturing problem. But I mean, those are the two most important things they do every day, right? They engineer aircraft and then they build them um, and send them out into the, into the fleet. Uh, but definitely, you know, we've had a number of problems in the manufacturing process, either at suppliers like Spirit, um, you know, or even up at Boeing. We had these we had bolts loose on the back of uh, uh, rudders of uh, aircraft that, that came out in the news over the over the holidays. It really feels like the stability isn't there in the in the build process, and and it's something that Boeing really needs to get you know really it's it's arms around quickly i mean i thought they would have felt this way mid-year last year right you, everyone talking supply chain you'd think they've been digging into spirit air systems digging into all their suppliers to make sure there's stability there it's a very very challenging process there are lots of suppliers there are lots of parts that get put together to make an airplane but i think this just just re-emphasizes the, the fact that they really have to dig into their supply chain and their suppliers and make sure they have stability in this manufacturing process if they need this if they want this recovery to continue in the, in the, in the company's delivers so George, we've been hearing about this every day we're here we're hearing some more information about it what is all this bode for for boeing's earnings i mean how are they doing before and and how do you expect them to be yeah so you know, we, we're we not ready to take down the number of deliveries we think they can make in 2024 based on what we've seen so far. Again, I think if we if we saw the grounding stretch to the max eight, that would be very, very concerning. Uh, then I think we'd start to think about, you know, what the real potential was to get all those deliveries out the door. 
Um, but, but but right now, it does seem to be contained to this fleet of 215 airplanes. It, it, we've heard a couple instances where there were other loose bolts, but we haven't heard it's it's absolutely widespread. And the inspection that, that they, they need to do, the last we heard on it was a four to eight hour inspection. That's not horrible. Something that ought to be able, you know, be able to be done in, in a couple months to get the rest of the fleet going. Again, if it stretches from that, everyone will have to take out their pencils again and think about what deliveries will be, and that's going to knock down cash flows, and that's going to knock down profitability of Boeing if we're going to knock it down. George, what's, is there concern here among investors and just observers that the federal government, Congress, from a regulatory perspective, might take a look at Boeing and put it Boeing in its sights here? I mean, Boeing's uh, sorry. Congress has done that once already. Okay. Uh, they are they are the national aerospace champion, and if something is amiss at Boeing, I think it does not bode well for America. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Congress dig in. They take a, a little bit of time. Uh, there's even I think even some concern. You know, the FAA has had its challenges. It's been short staffed. It's had turnover issues, um, and they've you know they've been maybe a little more intense on some of these issues. That, I guess that's a good thing when it comes, it's definitely a good thing when it comes to safety. Uh, you know, right now they seem to be, I, I imagine if the right way to put this is, they'll take this as far as they think they need to do to preserve their reputation, which got muddied in MCAS, which may be, you know, which may be even further given that history. And George, yesterday, um, the chief safety officer, he was right alongside the CEO. Um, talk about a pressure position. I mean, his position was created after those two fatal crashes about five years ago. So what's, what do you think, what's his thought process? What's going through his mind now? You know, I, I think the supply chain is, it's like an octopus. And that's got to be the hardest job inside inside Boeing, right? Or inside any company, especially Boeing. And I'm sure he's not getting a lot of sleep at night thinking about all the different things that can go wrong. It's it's like whack-a-mole, right? And my sense is that's what they've been doing. They've been finding problems, fixing them, and as they do that, they look they look to the right, and there's another one rising up that they've got to manage. Um, it would be nice if they got some stability inside these workforces. You know, the, I think the turnover is getting better. The, the longer you keep that better turnover, the longer folks are on the line, getting trained, doing the job, you know, numbers of repetitions, the better it's going to get. But but right now it just looks it looks pretty pretty rough, right? That's a really hard job. All right, George, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we always appreciate getting your insight here on all things aerospace airlines. That's George Ferguson. He covers the aerospace and airlines industry for Bloomberg Intelligence, decades of experience. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Consumer Electronics Show, the CES out in Vegas, 130,000 tech geeks get together out in Vegas and look at all the new gadgets and stuff like that. I've actually done it many, many times. It's a lot, lot of fun out there, but boy, there's crowded. You gotta wait long lines to get a taxi. Do you uh, go for the tech or for Vegas? Uh, both. Well, <laughs> let's be honest. You know, I go to the craps table at Bellagio and they know exactly where to find me if you're looking for me. Uh, we got some smart people out there. Mark Davis, uh, Mark Douglas, I'm sorry, the CEO of Mountain. Uh, we've talked to him a lot about the digital advertising space. He joins us here along with uh, Mark Penn, a president at Stagwell and a former chief strategy officer at Microsoft. Uh, gentlemen, thanks so much for, for joining us from 
Vegas. Looks like a pretty staid place where you guys are, not typically where you would find me if we were doing a live remote. Um, guys, I know you guys are, uh, kind of have a partnership that you uh, recently announced. Talk to us about that. Well, I can, I, I can start. So um, what we're focused on is essentially performance marketing for some of the world's largest brands. We've talked about performance marketing a lot, but what you see happening is with the demise of Nielsen, brands essentially, you know, want real metrics. They want real targeting. They don't, they're not happy with just spending hundreds of millions of dollars and having no real data and no real control over it. So both of us, Mark Penn, his company is kind Kind of the premier performance marketing holding company for agencies and obviously you guys know mountain bennett performance tv so we're teaming up with an offering geared directly at the world's largest brands to now enter the world of performance marketing hey mark talk yes, to us sir. about stagwell um what you guys do there and, and how you guys can serve advertisers and the networks um and you know really kind of help out with measurement there Sure. Uh, you know, Stagwell and NASDAQ listed companies, we're, uh, we manage about $5 billion of media for our clients. And so this, this partnership is very important to extend, you know, our uh, performance oriented uh, media into connected TV, where Mountain has a real specialty. And also we have a series of digital platform products in research, communications and media which Mountain can take to its primarily small business market. So we think this is a win-win partnership <clears throat> for digital marketers and, and for both of us in terms of the billions of dollars of media that we manage at Stagwell. Well, I mean, it, it, that is, certainly seems like a solution here to a growing problem because the growing problem is we now consume our media on so many different platforms uh, and it's almost impossible, I would think, to measure that accurately and you mentioned you talked, it's been a huge challenge for Nielsen so what what do the brands actually need and what can you guys deliver because I, I got to make sure I'm reaching my, my audience here well brands need results right and so so the real question is how much you invest and how much you kind of get back in return is it a two to one three to one four to one or you or you're just building your brand right and so what we have been has been a more performance oriented and the primary measurement of that is gonna be sales. We do have attribution tools, we do have location data. So we generally know if you've gone to the store or not gone to the store, uh, but by and large performance media has a set of KPIs which are really rigorous. <clears throat> that means <clears throat> that of the 2000 ads that people see a day, we'll, <clears throat> we'll be able to track how yours do. Now, Mark and Mark, you're making it easiest for us here. <laughs> Same name. You guys are out in the middle of it. CES, talk to us about some of the, the things that you're seeing there. What are some of the hot items that, that catch your eye? They, well, in, I've been on the show floor. I mean, I honestly, the hot topic is AI, but, you know, a, AI is just becoming pervasive. It's like electricity 100 years ago. Everything will be electrically powered. Everything will be AI powered. Um, so, you know, you go to the big booths. Some of these booths are like the size of large homes. And you see, I know LG had transparent televisions. You kind of see the future when you come to CES. You don't see the product they're launching today. You see what, what they're going to launch five years from now. And there's a lot, I mean, the transparent televisions, I think are really capturing everyone's attention. You just see through the TV 
and watch and and and, and watch television. That's the one that caught me. Uh, yeah, what are you gonna do with that? Mark? I know. I'm not sure. Oh, okay. Benefit, yeah. So I have to we have to buy it at it's some like, point. Uh, yeah, you know, I think I think this year's. Uh, I'm going to the floor more intensively this afternoon, but but really this year is a, is a year too early. Next year, I think is going to be amazing because next year people will have had the time to integrate AI with hardware. Yeah. And that's where I think you're going to see incredible advancement. I think here you see people talking AI, showing some AI, but they haven't really had time to build the, the consumer product that really incorporated it. Next year, I believe, will be spectacular. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. And and I'll I'll bring my transparent TV to, to witness <laughs> all this yeah, AI. Yeah, 3D. <laughs> So, hey, Mark Douglas, talk to us about just kind of when you're looking out at the metas of the world, the, uh, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, what, give us a state of the advertising market out there in terms of linear versus digital, because we hear the linear television is just brutal and it just seems like it's in a secular, secular decline. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. One of the, um, but the number of people watching TV is not changing. And so it's the business models of these media companies that are having to evolve, but the, the, the user, the viewers are there, the dollars are there. They're having to change how they acquire media. That actually, by the way, kind of fits right in on what Mark P and I, Penn and I are talking about in terms of the, the, the brands realize this and they're like, okay, well, I'm not going to rely on linear data anymore. I want something holistic. I think NBC made a really interesting announcement. They announced this year their goal is 60% of all ads that they serve, NBC on Peacock, CNBC, you know, like NBC Sports, they expect those to be now targeted in a digital way, in the way that like, like Stagwell and Mountain are focusing on. And that's a huge announcement. I mean, that's like, they're basically saying like they expect $20 billion of their ad spend to now be digitally targeted across linear TV and streaming TV. So, so that's a big announcement they made this week. What is the competitive response from AC Nielsen Company, the traditional measurement company, the currency for that $100 billion TV business? Uh, yeah, people are, <clears throat> people continue to seek the holy grail of complete measurement, which continues to be somewhat evasive in nature. But <clears throat> but again, more of it is performance oriented. You look at the partnership that we have. The partnership is really designed to capture the expanding market in connected TV. That really what's happening is linear TV is becoming connected TV. Yeah. <clears throat> Those people who said they would never, ever do ads like Netflix, they're doing ads. Yeah. Like Amazon, mm -hmm. they're doing ads. So ads are back. <clears throat> All that time which people were spending without ads is coming back to advertise time. And that's good for us, good for companies like Stagwell. Yeah, I think this mark this year is the start of the TV. You, you, a lot of people don't realize the TV industry grows at 1% rate, while streaming has grown obviously much faster. I think this is kicking off the year where the whole industry starts growing again. And we're gonna have a big political season. Remember, there's gonna be $12 billion on top of regular advertising here. And does that still yeah. go to primarily <laughs> local broadcast? Uh, it is now more distributed across all platforms, but I would still say it's more, you know, it used to be about 80% uh, local broadcast. I think that'll come down more like 50, 60%. 
with the 40% going to as local as you can get your digital. Yeah. All right, guys. All right. Thanks so much for joining us, both of you guys. Uh, Mark Douglas, president and CEO of Mountain, uh, and Mark Penn, president of uh, Stagwell. Uh, they are out there at the CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, out in Las Vegas, as is seemingly everybody else in almost every uh, any industry that has any kind of technology aspirations one way or the other. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm looking at Bitcoin, 45400 pretty much unchanged on the day. I think today's the day where the SEC is going to give us a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the spot. Um, Bitcoin ETF, which uh, people have been, in, particularly in the crypto space, are really, really waiting for because that would be a real seal of credibility here in the U.S. trading, at least. Uh, our next guest is all over this stuff. Greg Taylor, he's the CIO of Purpose Investments, whose Purpose Investments, well, Purpose Investments launched Purpose Bitcoin ETF, the first direct custody of Bitcoin ETF in the world in 2021 and they've been managing it ever since so he knows what's happening here hey greg i kind of we all got a head fake yesterday first of all thanks for joining us greg we all got a head fake yesterday with the you know twitter x whatever it is putting out a tweet that maybe they did get the approval then apparently was not what do you expect to happen today with the uh, sec yeah, I think the excitement yesterday was kind of on brand for crypto. Um, probably didn't surprise anyone too much, but but I think this is a space, and at the end of the day, it does feel like the SEC has run out of reasons not to do this ETF. So it does feel like today was today we're going to get the approval. It seems like a long time coming. Uh, Canada approved the ETF almost three years ago, and I think we've had a pretty good track record all the way through. So it feels like uh, today is today we'll get the announcement that the SEC has made the approval, and I think that's a good stamp of uh, credibility for the entire space. Now, Greg, take us through this approval process. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts for for that. Can you walk us through it? Well, I, I think the, the big thing I can speak to is the way the Canadian regulators did. And they were really trying to make sure that we had a good, safe ecosystem. And really, when we approved, when we initially uh, launched a, or applied for a crypto ETF back in uh, 2016, uh, the OSC, the Ontario Securities Commission, uh, declined that at that time, point in time because they thought the space was really not up and ready uh, for it to happen. A lot has happened since then, and I think uh, the exchanges have gotten better. The the whole ecosystem has gotten stronger. And, and when we got our green light to go in February 2021, it was all about working with the regulators to show that this is something that you can invest in, that it's going to be a lot safer for the average investor to get access to this through an ETF versus just buying through a crypto exchange. And I think that proved out in uh, 2022 when we saw a number of exchanges fail and a lot of people uh, lost money and had a bad experience in the whole crypto ecosystem. But those that had exposure through a regulated ETF on a, on a good regulated exchange uh, were able to just deal with the price volatility instead of the whole financial system collapse. So, Greg, you guys, again, you're, you're the ones with the experience in this with your purpose Bitcoin ETF. Talk to us about your ETF, kind of how has it evolved in terms of assets and, and just kind of how it trades and give us some sense of how that's been. 
Yeah, so we've been pretty happy with the whole trading uh, aspect through it. It's again, we're getting close to three years. Uh, we pretty much traded at NAV the entire time. We pretty much traded also with a one penny bid ask spread. So keeping very much institutional style investments. And I think that's why it's gotten a lot of uh, credibility and a lot of attention from both the retail and institutions uh, throughout Canada and the rest of the world that are using our product as a good way to get access to this. Uh, we've been trading on average around 15 to 20 million dollars a day, uh, but we've also had had big days where we've had inflows and outflows around 100 million. And I think the big credibility to the system that we've designed and, and done this is that we've not lost a single coin through this. And we've also not really impacted the market or impacted the way our nav is traded. Uh, so I think it's all about making sure that your processes are up and, and running. And I think it's also dealing really with the credible counterparties. Uh, that's the most important thing we've been focusing on is dealing with strong custodians, strong trading partners, and not really going for just something that's easy because this is a volatile sector, and I think you really want to make sure that people are going to get access to it and not have to worry about any of the underlying volatility. Yeah, I want you to expand on that a bit, Greg. So talk to us about uh, the crypto landscape in itself. I mean, it seemed like it had a pretty good run in, in 2023. Where do you see it going heading into uh, 2024? Well, that's the big question. And I think one of the things that people are really looking for is this bot, this US uh, ETF to come, because really it's tough to value Bitcoin. I think everyone's tried to come up with models and, and trying to come up with a way to look at this versus physical gold or something else. But at the end of the day, it comes down to supply and demand. And demand, we know it is really fixed. So it's kind of looking at, sorry, supply is really fixed. So when you look at demand, having bringing in new investors in a US ETF is really opening this up to a whole new market. And I think when you get that more demand coming back into this and, and people are looking for alternative uh, currencies and if people are losing interest in US dollar or some other fiat currencies, uh, having a, a sleeve of their assets in, in something like crypto could bring in more investors. So I think that could be positive for the entire ecosystem and in particular and for Bitcoin. Uh, the next big thing throughout the, the year is the halving, which is going to come out probably in Q2 of, of this year, which is really going to be something that takes down the incentive for, for Bitcoin. Bitcoin miners again so that will again limit supply so we could be setting up for 2024 that if we do have a risk on environment you've got more people looking for access to crypto and also less supply out there so could be setting up for a bullish year but as we know this is a volatile asset class and, and anything can happen. Greg what do you expect to happen when we get the big heavyweight brands like you know Vanguard and BlackRock and Kathy Wood's ARK when you get the big big names coming in this ETF space how do you think it's going to play out over the coming weeks and months? Well, at the end of the day, it is going to open it up to a whole new sleeve of investors. Uh, our products have been up and running for, for almost two years, but really at the end of the day, over almost three years, but at the end of the day, you really want to get more U.S. retail investors involved in this. And, and that's something that I think this will only help. So that should bring in more, more buyers to the space. And that, again, should add more credibility to the space. I, I think the SEC finally getting around and more comfortable with the ecosystem, again, will be a stamp of approval for the whole space. So this is a positive development and I think should at the end of the day uh, lead to to further uh, advancements. Maybe the next thing we'll see is an Ethereum uh, ETF coming down the road. And I think that would be good for the space as well. And anyway, so does an approval from the SEC, does that basically mean that it's, it's a yes for everyone else? I mean, what does that mean if they say yes to, let's say, one application? 
Well, I, I have a hard time seeing how they'd approve one and not the, the others because everyone's basically using the same format, uh, which is, again, very similar to where we have with uh, similar custodians with uh, the Gemini and Coinbase and similar trading partners and as similar structures. So I think at the end of the day, they will approve all of them versus just one-offs. Uh, and then it's going to be, as we're seeing a, a competition, to see who's going to be the one that gains the market share. Uh, we were we were fortunate to be the first in Canada, and, and that was a, a good advantage to to go. But you really, at the end of the day, then have to deliver. Uh, there's one thing being first to market, but if you have investors uh, a bad experience, then that's something where you can lose a lot of credibility and and really be a mark on the whole ecosystem. So I think uh, what we are hoping for is that this is going to be a good experience, that there aren't going to be any problems in the first day of trading, and and that would be at the end of the day positive for the space. Greg Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Greg Taylor, he's the CIO of Purpose Investments. So the, the good folks up in Canada, they came out with the world's first uh, direct custody Bitcoin ETF. They did that in 2021. So Canadians ahead of the U.S. market here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Right now, let's get back out to Vegas. Um, the high rollers table at the Bellagio, uh, Wu Jin Ho, he covers all the technology stuff for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Wooj, first question. What hotel are you staying at? Um, I'm at the Alara. Which one? The Hilton Alara. Uh, the strip. All right. Keeps me out of trouble. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Bellagio guy myself, but anyway, good stuff. Wooj, talk to us about this deal uh, that we see with HPE and uh, this other. I mean, does this make sense for the, the sector? Because I know there's a lot of uh, uncertainty out there just about, you know, kind of what this deal means uh, for the companies here? Sure. So um, for for HPE, they've been looking to diversify their uh, core computing business for quite some time now. Um, one of the things that they've done several years back, they made the Aruba acquisition, low start, but that's one of the more profitable businesses for, for HPE. In making this acquisition with Juniper, they've actually doubled down on networking the networking business is as large as the compute business. And the hope over the long term is to drive better margin expansion uh, going forward. What do you think about the price here? Is this a, and, and I guess the bigger issue is, is this a good use of cash, good use of capital? You know, that, that's a really good question. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, investors were uh, not too happy uh, reflected by the share price, right? I, I think there was an expectation of uh, some money coming due from the H3C divestiture, roughly about $3 billion, coming back into uh, better um, capital returns. Now, now, that being said, you know, the, the question is, is that, um, you know, with that $14 billion used uh, for, for Juniper, will that drive multiple expansion? Um, let, let me give you a case in point. If you think about uh, traditional Dell, HP, uh, and uh, HPE, they trade roughly around eight to nine times forward earnings. The networking guys on average trade roughly about 15 times forward earnings, 15, 16 times. If it goes back, if, if, if we start reverting to the mean on, um, to the two multiples, you could probably get about a 30% valuation bump if this deal works out for uh, for HPE's favor. Wait. Ooh, is that the Hello? sphere behind you? Yeah. That is very uh, cool. That is the sphere. That is very That's why cool. I picked this hotel. 
That's yeah. why I picked this hotel. <laughs> Very good. I mean, I got to get out there because it looks really <laughs> awesome out there. So anyway, all right, Wu Jin Ho, thanks for taking some time out there. I'll let you get back to the conference uh, floor there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CutterEconomicForum.com.